This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by TCAN. TCAN is a leading global provider of automated laboratory instruments and solutions. Their systems and components help people working in clinical diagnostics, basic and translational research, and drug discovery bring their science to life. In particular, they develop, produce, market, and support automated workflow solutions that empower laboratories to achieve more. Today's presentation is titled Nucleic Acids 101, Confirming Their Quality, and is being presented by Dr. Victoria Dornina from Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Dr. Victoria Dornina graduated from the Belarusian State University in Minsk, Belarus. Then, as a recipient of the Darwin Trust Scholarship, she did her PhD at the University of Edinburgh in the UK under the supervision of Professor Noreen Murray. Following her doctoral work, Victoria did a postdoc on molecular and cellular biology of protein translation in several Russell Group universities. Currently, she's a technical officer at the Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Now, as always, we have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Victoria at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available in the next 24 to 48 hours at bit.ly slash DNA quality webinar. That's bit.ly slash DNA quality webinar, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Victoria, for the presentation. Uh, hello, my name is Victoria Doronina, and today we will be talking about nucleic acids, uh, how to isolate them and how to determine the quantity and quality which is an important question because uh, very often nucleic acids is basis of your future experiment. And if the quality is substandard, then all your downstream experiments will be low quality as well. So next year, we will celebrate the 150th anniversary of DNA isolation. Uh, DNA was isolated by a physician Friedrich Mayer. Uh, he wanted to see what's inside the cells, and he understood that you need to have a high-quality material and a lot of it. He started with lymphocytes, but there wasn't enough of them uh, to do any meaningful extraction. So he ended up using discarded bandages, where there was a lot of pus containing leukocytes, and he. Using acidic precipitation, he isolated a compound which he called nuclein, which was, as we now know, DNA uh, in complex with proteins. In 1878, Albert Kessel isolated the non-protein component of nuclein, nucleic acid, and that was DNA. Uh, there was a lot of confusion about heredity about it, uh, about this time, uh, people didn't know what genes were physically. Uh, in 1928, Frederick Griffin discovered that if you kill smooth pneumococcus and then uh, mix it with rough form, some of the bacteria converted. And he knew using various uh, enzymes, he uh, narrowed it down to the nuclear lane. In 1933, Jean Pratchett suggested that DNA uh, is in the nucleus while RNA is in the cytoplasm. And that was groundbreaking because it was thought that RNA was exclusively in plant tissues and DNA, so-called thymus nucleic acid, was in animal tissues. So, uh, where can you get your uh, nucleic acids from? And we will be talking not about the small quantities you need to amplify, uh, amplify DNA, but to have large quantities enough to work with to, uh, for example, use it in cloning. 
you can use live or freshly harvested uh, tissues, uh, animal tissues, for example, epithelial, plant tissues, and microbial cultures. You can also use frozen tissues, cultures, and this is uh, this makes isolation of nucleic acids uh, simple because you don't need to do it straight away. Uh, you can also isolate nucleic acids from preserved tissues, but this usually this is usually a challenge because uh, the preservation uh, cross-links proteins to the nucleic acids. You can also isolate nucleic acids from viral particles. So uh, if we're talking about DNA, there is a fundamental difference between genomic DNA and vector DNA. Uh, if you take a bacterial culture E. coli, for example, which has a plasmid, genomic DNA will have a high molecular weight, uh, vector will be low weight, and of a bacterial chromosome uh, is circular, but in eukaryotic cells is usually linear, and uh, there is a lot of supercoiling on uh, vector DNA. There is also supercoiling on genomic DNA, but as soon as you lyse the cell, you will most likely break it and it will lose its supercoiling unraveling. So uh, you can use any type of lysis if you want to isolate genomic DNA, but uh, alkaline lysis is usually used for vector DNA. When it comes to RNA, you have more types of it in the cell and first of all we have ribosomal RNA which constitutes 80 to 90 percent uh, of total RNA then you have messenger RNA which is two point uh, two and a half percent to five percent but uh, the particular mRNA which you would be interested in uh, obviously will represent only a small quantity out of this and depending on the half-life and uh, transcription, it can be either just a few molecules or many hundreds of thousands of molecules per cells. Uh, then you have transferonase, and which are smaller, several hundred nucleotides, and now uh, research is concentrated on smaller RNAs, which can be either structural, such as nucleolar RNAs, uh, and microRNAs. So the most abundant RNA types, which is ribosomal and transferonase, are less susceptible to the degradation. And they usually used to look at the quality of your sample, because if you run them on a gel and you see that ribosomal RNA is degraded, it doesn't run like a tight band, that most likely your RNAs, is, uh, your RNAs will be degraded as well. So uh, RNA has a bit of a bad reputation. Obviously, if you compare it with DNA, it's much more difficult to isolate because it's prone to degradation. Uh, we can all understand why protocell went from uh, genetic material, which was kept as RNA, into the DNA. What is good laboratory practice? You need immediately freeze uh, your cells or homogenize them in the presence of solution which will kill your RNAs. You need to store samples at minus 80 and never allowed to thaw because when you uh, even lower the temperature, your sample starts melting and uh, cells start rupturing, releasing RNAs. You need to pre-treat the sample uh, prior to resolution of RNA if it has uh, high lipid or carbohydrate content. Uh, you need to do DNA treatment to get rid of DNA, uh, but you need to make sure that your DNA is RNA-free because even a few molecules will degrade your sample. And you need to avoid environmental RNAs. And as you know, you have RNAs on the skin and uh, in the dust uh, around you. So uh, 
it's a good idea to keep your bench and your shelves RNAs free and obviously use pre-treated glassware. And then when you get your RNA and you confirm that it's good quality, uh, you need to aliquot it into small aliquots and store at minus 80. Because with DNA, it's not uh, so important. You can do your mini prep and then use it 50 times, uh, taking a microliter each time. But with RNA, each time you defrost it, you have a chance to get these uh, pesky RNAs, these molecules into it. So uh, you need to make sure that you use fresh RNA. Uh, both DNA and RNA can be isolated uh, going through several stages. The first stage is effective cell lysis. And this is important because if 50% of your material uh, is not lysed intact cells, obviously you won't get your nucleic acids out of it. Uh, also, it's important not, if you are using a kit not to overload the kit because if the kit says uh, use 50 mils of cells and you use 100 it doesn't mean that you will get twice as many nucleic acid it will it means that you will overload uh, your experiment with uh, debris and you will get either very low quality of nucleic acid or not much of it then you need to inactivate nucleases, obviously, because as soon as you lyse the cells, uh, the enzymes are running amok and degrading your samples. And also the integration nucleoprotein complexes, usually it's all because uh, nucleases are uh, enzymes, it's usually done in one step. And last but not least, you need to completely remove all reagents and materials which you use to obtain your nucleic acids and i will show what happens if you don't do that so main methods of nucleic acid purification can be divided into solution based and solid phase based uh, solution based methods both for dna and rna uh, rely on different uh, physical chemical properties of various molecules. So the difference in properties of nucleic acids and proteins. So for DNA, you can use alkaline lysis and because of the differences I've talked to you about, the chromosomal DNA uh, is being denatured by the alkaline uh, alkaline solution and it goes into the precipitate with proteins and carbohydrates. You can also use CTAP for uh, samples with high polysaccharide content. This is for uh, plant cells and for certain gram-negative bacteria as well. For RNA, you have a choice of SDS hot phenol method uh, which inactivates RNAs uh, by using hot temperature, uh, 65 degrees, and uh, as this in solution, which denatures all proteins. Or you can use gonadinocyanide phenol chloroform, uh, which is, uh, works in the same way. So for affinity methods, if uh, for solution-based methods, we use solutions only. The, here we have some uh, particles which have affinity for the DNA. And the idea is not to separate solution into different phases as in solution-based methods where you uh, treat something with phenol and DNA is in the water phase and uh, proteins are on the interface. Here, your Nucleic acid molecules bind to some sort of particles, which can be zirconium beads, uh, glass beads, and then magnetic beads. And you can see on the picture how it works. You have a paramagnetic 
particle, which contains, for example, uh, iron oxide, and it's wrapped in cellulose, which has affinity for uh, DNA. So DNA sticks to the particles, and then you apply magnetic field, and your uh, particles go into the precipitate containing DNA, and then you can remove uh, the rest of the solution, wash beads, and then uh, using different strengths buffer, uh, disassemble them. And we also know the most popular method, at least for mini preps, is silica matrix. For RNA, you can isolate uh, poly A RNA using uh, oligo DT cellulose chromatography. But this only works for uh, RNA, which has uh, poly tail, which is mRNA. So uh, poly A binds to poly T, and you need a high. Uh, ionic strands to keep it together because you know this is a less stable uh, solution. So uh, we all use silica matrix and it works on, if you look at the picture A, uh, you lyse your cells, you apply solution to the column and uh, using sodium as a bridge, uh, positively charged silica particles bind to negatively charged phosphates and then you wash uh, so you wash the column and apply low ionic strength buffer uh, such as water or TE. And I will be talking later why it's better to use a buffer uh, than uh, water. And you can see that when you use uh, the column, it's never 100% efficient because some of your uh, nucleic acid will be uh, will be bound to the column, and you will lose it. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So. Now that we lysed our cells and we isolated our uh, DNA or RNA, we have several methods of uh, detecting nucleic acid quantity and quality. Uh, the most used method is direct spectroscopy. Then you have fluorescent spectroscopy, where you uh, use a dye which binds to your nucleic acid and allows you to see it. Then gel electrophoresis and qPCR. So direct spectroscopy is the most quick and easy uh, method, while qPCR is uh, reliable, but obviously you need a lot of reagents and uh, it's time consuming and reagent consuming. And again, later I will show you uh, an experiment where people used all these methods on the same sample and how reliable and how comparable they are. So now that we have our uh, nucleic acids, we isolated it using one of the methods. Uh, in ideal world, we will not have any contaminants in our sample. However, uh, there are usually contaminants and often they interfere with downstream uh, applications. Therefore, we need to know what are these contaminants and how we can get rid of them, how to detect them first of all, and then how to get rid of them. So contaminants can be incomplete removal of biological molecules. Uh, you can have contamination of your sample with lipids, carbohydrates, proteins. If you have contamination with proteins, it can be that you have DNAs and RNAs in there, and this uh, can degrade your sample with time, unless you keep it at minus 80. And then if you have DNA 
obviously you don't want RNA to be present in there uh, and vice versa. There is also an incomplete removal of the variants, uh, which is phenol if you use phenol extraction or other solvents if you use CTAP, uh, for example. So let's talk about the direct spectroscopy. And this is uh, a simplified graph of uh, absorption spectrum. And uh, this is in UV, UV part of the spectrum. And when you use your spectroscope or you use your nanodrop most often now, uh, three main uh, three main wavelengths to look at is 230, 260, and 280. At 230, usually contaminants uh, absorb, uh, and you can look at the sample i'll show you later and see what how pure is your sample at 260 nucleic acids absorb and at 280 uh, protein so this is a bit of complicated uh graph but on the left we have percentage of dna in the solution and then on the right you can see a ratio, OD ratio between two wavelengths. And we have two graphs. Uh, the brown one is uh, Haki 230 to 260 and then 260 to 280. And you can see that while uh, with the increase of percent of DNA in your solution, both graphs are increasing, uh, but you can see that uh, 260 to 280 is more reliable. Let's look at an example of uh, nanodrop spectrum, but any of your spectrum will look similarly. Uh, so this is a high ratio, and usually if the ratio is about 2, uh, 260 to 280, uh, this is uh, most likely a good sample with high concentration of uh, DNA and quite pure. So you can see a dip at about 230, which means that there is not much contamination. And then you can see a peak at 260. Now we'll compare it with a sample which has low to 60 to 80 ratio. And you can immediately see that there is a peak at 230 and there is a lower peak at 260 which means that this sample most likely contains a lot of debris and unless you uh, want to risk that your downstream application won't work you need to clean up the sample before you use it so the most common problems with 260 to 80 ratio, you have a high reading, but you can see that there is a lot of debris there. Uh, a residual phenol can interfere with re your reading when you think that there is more DNA than it is uh, in, because you have a phenol, a phenol has a similar absorption spectra as DNA. Then, you can have a low reading. It means that there can be residual RNA uh, in the extraction or, again, phenol contamination. Now let's look on the pH and its influence on 260 to AC ratio. Uh, if you remember, I told you before that it's better to use a buffer rather than uh, deionized water. Uh, Dionized water is acidic and can degrade your sample, but if you look at this graph, so uh, on the left you see 260 to 80 ratio, uh, and here is uh, the pH uh, in phosphate buffer. Uh, this is a graph for, for RNA, but it's similar for DNA as well, and you can see that at a low pH, 
you will have a similar ratio for both pure RNA and RNA and protein mix. However, if you uh, move towards uh, pH 8, you can see that they will have different ratios and you will be able to get an information whether your uh, sample is contaminated by protein. Therefore, it's better to use a TE buffer for elution and storage of your nucleic acid uh, than water. So again, I told you that we will look at uh, the comparison of different methods of determination of uh, nucleic acid concentration. So here we have two graphs that are broadly similar and this was uh, DNA, uh, which was frozen and then defrosted and diluted. And uh, the concentration of DNA in the sample was determined direct spectroscopy. Uh, these are circles and fluorescent spectroscopy using uh, dye pico green. This is squares and then qPCR. So, the good news are that in most of the cases, whether we are using uh, direct cheap and simple direct spectroscopy or qPCR, uh, over the range of uh, DNA concentrations, uh, they determine the same amount. However, you can also see that in some cases, especially if, if the concentration is low, the fluorescence spectroscopy underestimates the amount of nucleic acid that you have. Therefore, uh, you need to be aware of this and it's still in some cases uh, it's better to use direct spectroscopy rather than fluorescent spectroscopy. However, all these methods, while they will give us some information about the quality, uh, I, if you don't have a lot of debris, your sample is good. They will not tell us what is the size of your nucleic acid, whether it's uh, degraded, if you're isolating genomic DNA, for example, and you want to have high molecular weight, but it can be that your DNA is degraded. So usually uh, the proof of the quality of your sample is when you run your uh, nucleic acid on a gel, just analytic words to make sure that it works. And here we can see a number of samples where DNA was extracted and it's run on a gel and it's bound to pick a green. And here you can see that uh, fluorescent uh, comes in very handy because despite these samples uh, one to three and four to six having comparable amount of nucleic acid as measured by direct spectroscopy you can immediately see that samples one to three have a high molecular weight compounds uh, unlike four to six which means that DNA is degraded in uh, samples four to six. Therefore, uh, after isolation, you can do a quick check of uh, the amount of your DNA and you will have a rough idea uh, of what is the quality of this sample. But if you need a very high quality, then you need to look at it uh, on the gel. And obviously, you won't be able to see your uh, RNA, especially if it's a small RNA or if it's uh, uh, mRNA. But at least you will be able to see, you should be able to see tRNAs and RNAs. I talked about the separate isolation of DNA and RNA, but there are emergent methods which allow you to isolate your nucleic acids from, uh, from the same sample. And this is a method which was introduced 
for plant cells. So you homogenize cells, lyse them, then you extract them by uh, a non-polar uh, extraction method, and you can uh, separate metabolites, and then in the pellet you have DNA, RNA, protein, solubilize the pellet, use the columns, and in the end you will have uh, short and long RNAs. There is also another method which proposed to use methanol water chloroform extraction for samples, and this is a method for uh, mammalian cells, not just for plant cells. And there are now on the market kits which will allow you to do exactly that. So you start with one culture and you will have both proteins, RNAs, RNA and DNA from the same sample. Uh, so that was what we do and emerging techniques as well. But some of us are lucky enough to work in the institutes where you can send your samples to be extracted and receive your clean uh, DNA or RNA, mostly DNA back. This is an example of uh, a machine which extracts, can extract DNA from uh, hundreds and thousands of samples at the same time. They're usually based not on the columns because you need to uh, spin the columns. It's usually used on magnetic beads. And uh, this how this machine looks like without people. So to summarize, the quality of nucleic acid extraction depends on the optimal conditions, uh, conditions on the stages of nucleic acid extraction. So lysis, uh, nuclear protein denaturation, inactivation of nucleases, and removal of contamination. Uh, nucleic acid purification using liquid methods is suitable for processing of large volumes of culture and obtaining most comprehensive coverage, be it DNA or RNA. Uh, on the other hand, affinity methods allow to obtain small volume of high quality nucleic acid and you don't need to worry about uh, carryover of solvents such as phenol. Uh, direct spectroscopy is still the most accessible method of estimation uh, of nucleic acid quantity and partially, partially quality. And lastly, I recommend you to visit uh, Tikan blog where you can see all these wonderful machines and you can get tips uh, about your nucleic acid extraction. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Vicki. That was an excellent presentation. So now we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box on the right of your screen. So the first question we have is from Patricia and they're asking about separation and purification of larger nucleic acids, such as like 20 KB, 50 KB, 150 KB, et cetera. Uh, yes, so uh, it depends on what type of nucleic acid it is, first of all. So you can have a large vector or artificial chromosome, uh, which is 50 KB. Uh, or if it's genomic DNA, it's, it's a different matter. Uh, there are kits on the market which uh, allow you to isolate large uh, vectors or large genomic preps or large DNA molecules. But in my experience, most of the kits look good, work good in a mid-range. So from several KBs to up to 30 KBs. And above that, you will have very low yield. So if it's a vector, 
uh, nucleic acid you are after. I would do uh, alkaline lysis and then phenol extraction, and then you can reprecipitate uh, several times. Okay, and then um, she follows it up because since you mentioned um, the phenol extraction, is there an easier way to clean a nucleic acid um, from proteins so separated nucleic acid from protein than phenol purification? Uh, you you can do isopropanol precipitation. There are several methods which allow you to avoid phenol. And again, if you if your DNA size is is small, then you can reprecipitate it just several times. But the phenol is used because it allows you to kill two birds with one stone to get rid of most of the most of the uh, proteins, including the nucleases. So yes, you can do it just. Uh, search for non-phenol extraction, you can use different uh, solvents. Okay. And then um, we have a question about what is the best way to assess RNA quality and quantity? And this is from Anshi. Uh, uh, as I say, uh, in, in fact, uh, there is not much difference between assessing uh, DNA and RNA. Uh, if if you have all the precaution as said, so the pathway will be the same. You have your sample, uh, assess it on the uh, nanodrop or spectroscopically diluted. Uh, look at the graph. The graph will be the same. So 260 to 280, and it will tell you how it works. Uh, it's a bit difficult to assess uh, the quality of your particular RNA of whatever you're doing, because uh, it's often that you work with minute quali minute quantities. So what you need to do, uh, it, it's laborious, but uh, the only way is to do blood uh, uh, or uh, QPCR, QPCR, yes, to get DNA out of your, of your RNA. Okay. Um, do you have a specific lysis method that you recommend for, um, if you want to do, sorry, is, do you have a specific lysis method, method that you recommend if you want to do multiple displacement amplification on a precious sample? Uh, well, to that I, I forgot to mention that uh, on the bite-sized bios there are several good articles about lysis, specifically about lysis methods, and uh, uh, I recommend you to look for it. If if you have a small sample, uh, it's hard to say in this in this case because I don't know what is what is the starting material because obviously uh, it will be different if it's a plant tissue or if it's a bacterial tissue. Uh, but in general, if you do, don't want to lose uh, anything, uh, freeze it first time and, and then you'll see what you can do downstream. Okay. Um, do you have a, any recommendations about extracting DNA from sample oil? From sample oil? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was like that's a little, um, kind of a little esoteric. Um, so Buhari asks about his sample, ginger, which has a high amount of uh, phenolic compounds, and he's interested in virus RNA from the sample. Um, do you have any recommendations on the best buffer to use for intact viral RNA? Uh, for in intact viral RNA? Yes. Uh, again, you need I, I don't know this specific mm -hmm. specific answer. However, I had a thought about the sample oil. Uh, okay. You need to, you need to uh, resuspend it uh, using some aqueous buffer. So it's the same principle uh, when you use phenol. So what you do, you create an emulsion where you have droplets of. Uh, water basically with uh, the solvent 
and then when you have this emulsion uh, the hydrophilic molecules such as nucleic acid will go into this water-based droplets and then you uh, spin them uh, and this separates the oil fraction from the water fraction and that's where you will have your uh, nucleic acids yeah perfect i should have thought of that um for okay so we have this is kind of an unusual question so i don't know if you're gonna um know about this because it's a bit out of the scope of the webinar um so jen asks about um they work on an rna protein complex for crystallization and they'd like to ask what would be the best and simplest method to measure the RNA protein complex concentration after the final purification. And they know that Again? it's pure. <laughs> so uh, as I said, uh, direct spectroscopy is your method. Obviously, uh, you will not know what is exactly the concentration of your RNA, but it doesn't matter because you're interested in the concentration mm -hmm. of the complex. So what you can do, you can do some uh, graphs, uh, some sample graphs of RNA and protein, and then compare it with what what you have. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then Fiaz asks, is there any procedure to preserve DNA for a long time? Uh, minus eighty. You can <laughs> you can, and, and you can keep it forever. Right. If, if your minus 80 is not defrosted, but it's, <laughs> uh, DNA, for DNA, it's really easy, even at minus 20. Although I don't recommend you to keep DNA uh, for a long time mm -hmm. at minus 20, but it will be stable at least for a couple of years at minus 80. And just don't use just don't use water. So okay. uh, TE of mm -hmm. about pH 8 and then at minus 80. And again, if you worry about degradation, uh, you can do the same as for RNA, uh, aliquoted. Okay. So uh, you don't, don't have to do so many three stars. Obviously, when you defrost it each time, it will be degraded a little. So it's better to, to have 10 aliquots, 10 microliters each. Also, beware of evaporation as well. Make sure that. Uh, your, your DNA is, is still there. Okay, and so I've got a couple of questions I'm going to combine. So um, they want to know, so Fiaz wants to know if there's um, any method to concentrate DNA. Uh, again, it depends on uh, what type of DNA you have. If if it's uh, plasmid DNA, uh, it's very simple. There's special mm -hmm. columns that allow you to concentrate uh, DNA. Uh, if your size of your molecules is too large or too small, it's just you know normal uh, precipitation where you add sodium acetate and then you add ethanol, uh, spin down DNA precipitates because because of uh, the salt and then you take off supernatant wash it to get rid of the salt and resuspend it in a much smaller <laughs> sample and the same goes for RNA as well uh, you can concentrate concentrate it using the same method but obviously you need to be aware that all of the uh, ethanol and everything that you use is uh, RNA free Okay, and then following up on that, is there an optimum uh, DNA concentration for targeted or Sanger sequencing of a bacterial genome? Uh, as I said, this is a universal method. Uh, in general, this sequencing is not, not very sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, but you need to make sure that your sample doesn't contain traces of uh, ethanol because it can okay. interfere with the sequencing. So that interferes with the actual sequencing reaction? Yes. Okay, and then we have a question from Maskan. They're asking about, um, does RNA contamination affect the quality of the plasmid prep? 
sorry, sorry, can you repeat that? Sorry, does RNA contamination affect the quality of the plasma of their pro? Blah. Would uh, RNA the, contamination uh, affect the quality of their plasmid prep? Yes, I understand. Okay. Uh, sometimes you can see that your prep contains uh, sort of uh, little blobs at the end of the gel, and that most likely is tRNA, which was mm -hmm. purified with your samples. But for most uh, for most applications, it doesn't matter. So uh, it will not interfere with your transformation it can even enhance it because all the nucleic acids are uh, being taken into the cell it will not interfere your with pcr with your <laughs> pcr as well because uh, the primers will not bind to uh, tRNA so uh, the short mm -hmm. answer is no on the other hand, you don't want contamination of DNA in your RNA because right. if you do uh, reverse PCR, then obviously it will uh, completely invalidate your uh, results. Yes. And then we've got um, Buhari's following up on um, your answer about direct spectroscopy. So how do you clean the nucleic acid if you have contamination that you find uh, after um, direct spectroscopy? Right, so as I've already said, it's a universal method to get rid of mm -hmm. uh, your contamination. You need you to re-precipitate your nucleic acid, uh, either using uh, a column or using the direct precipitation, as I said, uh, sodium acetate and then uh, with ethanol. Uh, but you need to be aware that the for uh, highly contaminated samples, you may have to do it twice, and obviously mm. you will lose some amount of nucleic acid at uh, during during the precipitation. But if if you do it following the protocol, no more than ten percent will be lost. Okay. So it's um, it's you know. Uh, you need to decide what is easier mm -hmm. to clean it up or to start again. Right. Uh, right. And, so it's kind of a trade-off. Yes. Uh, usually it's easier, especially if it's a pressure sample, it's easier to uh, re-precipitate. Re mm -hmm. If it's a, again, if it's a pressure sample, you may want to add some carrier nuclear uh, nucleic acid, which will be effectively neutral for your experiment because then you will be less likely to lose your uh, small amount of nucleic acid that you have. Okay. And then we have a follow up. We have a question from Assad about um, how can fluorescent spectroscopy determine the quality? Uh, if we look at the, if we look at the graph, as mm -hmm. I said, if you have a high 230 reading, Right. Uh, high to thirty reading, then most likely your nucleic acid is not good. So, uh, so we have two direct spectroscopy graph over there, and mm -hmm. you can immediately see the difference. It starts with sort of valley, this one on the left, and then it starts with a peak in here and then at 260 uh, on the left you have a high peak and then you have a low peak so this peak about 230 shows you that most likely your sample is contaminated with stuff i listed lipids lipids or carbohydrates or whatever you had in your sample this is a bad sign i mean if if i saw that uh i would we precipitated okay immediately and without without it running on the gel because on the gel you won't see it unless it's so bad that you will see it stuck in the well okay and then um i have a question from prashant and i think this probably would be better if you could maybe point them in the direction of some resources so they're looking for an effective method of extracting um, matrix matrix associated dna 
Um, do you know of any resources that you can point them towards for um, extracting, for finding a good method for that extracting that particular type of DNA? I don't know if you've had experience with it yourself. I know an excellent resource is called PubMed. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> sorry, I never worked with it, so I okay. cannot comment. And then um, we have, I think, our last question is from Cameron, and they're asking about extracting RNA from the nodule. So this is long, but I think it's got a fairly simple answer. So they're extracting RNA from the nodules of soybean using tri-reagent. Um, right now, what they're doing is the soybeans are grown in about a 10-minute drive from their lab, and they flash freeze the soybeans in liquid nitrogen, but that makes it very hard for them to lyse later on. Could they, at the external location, harvest them, immediately lyse them, and then store it in tri-reagent, and then bring them back to the lab for extraction later? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, as you've seen, I, I had on the slide that you need yes. to immediately add chaotropic reagents to it, which prevents it from uh, prevents aranases from acting. So yeah, I would I would definitely try it. There you go, Cameron. So you, you can give it a try. Well, that brings us to the end of the webinar. So thank you again, Victoria, for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. It was fantastic. Thank you for helping me. And thanks also to our sponsor, TCAN. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the webinar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you on BiteSizeBio. So until next time, good luck in your research, and goodbye from all of us at TCAN and BiteSizeBio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.